Episode 63, Marsha Barnes. Welcome to Gut Plus Science. Analytics about people. Insights for executives. Truth you can act on. A high-energy, fast-paced, results-oriented exchange featuring employee engagement evangelist and CEO, your host, Nikki Llewellyn. Hey, it's Nikki, and we're back on Gut Plus Science. And one of my favorite things to talk about is employee engagement, of course, but going even more niche, it's about building relationships in the workplace. And today we're going to talk about how loving and serving our people is really the way to unlock those relationships. I have a mentor of mine with me today, Marsha Barnes, who does this really well, uh, practices it uh, every day, whether she is uh, on one of the, I don't know, 20 boards that she represents across the world. Uh, doing her service work or building her company, Valvin Meter, Marsha does it with love and service. She lives it. And so her background, as many of you know, is with Defender Direct, which is now Defender. She grew that company from two to $400 million in her time there just over a, a decade. And the key to really getting people to follow behind that defender's vision has so much to do with investing in the relationships of our people and loving and serving them. So we're going to dissect that on the show today with Marsha. Let's get to it. All right, Marsha. So I want to talk about what it means to serve our people, our employees in the workplace. I I believe the greatest leaders don't see their people as their servants or their workers. Rather, they seek to serve. I know this applies to you because I've heard many of those keynote talks and just you and one-on-one interactions. So tell me what you're thinking when you think about leaders who serve in the workplace, serving their employees, what's coming up? Well, I think you know most of what is involved in service is creating a desire to serve other people. And sometimes that's a muscle that you develop over time of thinking about what the needs of the others are before your own. That's, that's where authenticity comes in. You know, people can sense when you're really trying to do something that's good for them versus what's best for you. And so if you start to come at all of your dealings with people, whether it's the people you work with or the people that are your customers or even vendors, I see it a lot in vendor relationships need that element as well. So the desire to serve is closely pinned to um, loving people. And when you love people well, you have this desire to serve. And that that really is so incredibly valuable in authentic leadership. So big, so big. And I, I want to really hone in on this term love, loving our people. And let's illustrate that for a second. You know, I think sometimes there's there's parameters on how do we show up as, as leaders with our suit and tie and, you know, here are the, you know, the protocol that we need to follow. But ultimately, we break things down and people stay when they have relationships with their leaders, when they have relationships with their colleagues. So can you illustrate to us what it looks like in a workplace, just work it day to day with your employees? What does love look like when that shows up? Well, I think seeing an individual as a whole person and a whole job is important. Um, you know, making sure you learn about people and you know their stories. Specifically, where I feel like we can miss very easily if we're not careful is about knowing people's stories of how they've impacted you and your business or their colleagues in a meaningful way, too. I'm just remembering we're the we are this at our company because this person did these things or acted in these ways. People really need need you to know that and and that you uh, it's a form of recognition and a depth of relationship that's important. 
often I'll have people come to me that have worked with me maybe many years ago and they'll say, this time when you did that changed this outcome for me in these ways. And I didn't, I didn't know it at the time of what it would become. And, and yet if you just act consistently in that way, um, the results kind of pile up on one another over many years of service. So I know that this is a loaded question. <laughs> Might be tough to unpack it for a second, but when we think of, you know, you're you're a CEO of a company, you're you're having to build leaders all the time for your company to continue to grow. And you look at your history of having an organization with thousands of people. So leadership development was huge. How do you help your leaders, whether they are new leaders or leaders coming into the organization that you're, you know, blazing the trail? How do you get them to adopt the servant? leadership mindset? Well, part of that is in the selection process. You're, you're looking for it when you're hiring. So that's definitely the case. One of the things that I get a lot from new people on our team, maybe young people at the beginning of their career that start on our, in our business on a frontline position, it's very, very quickly that they start asking questions about the, where their next step is in the organization and that step in their mind and the way they communicate it with me is something to do with when will I be somebody's boss? That's what it boils down to. When will I have a team? When will I be leading others? And so we have this mindset that success in business and work means that you're leading, you're, you're leading other people. You are a boss. And I've just really never felt like that's the mark of great leadership of being in control of other people or having other people reporting to you. I think if you master the work and you focus on getting results in the work, that the more results you get in the work, the more influence you become and you, the more influence that you have. And so mastery of work and success and results ends up giving you all of the responsibilities you could ever hope to have. And, and pretty soon you look around and you're leading a whole lot of people and they're leading you, you know. I love that. How do you think a, a leader who serves and loves handles conflict? Well, you really can't love people well unless you are willing to be candid. I I, I see a lot of folks trying to avoid conflict. I, I can be guilty of that myself. The real deal is, is conflict is a result of not taking care of little things you should have been candid about on the way to the conflict happening. So if you're doing good coaching and you're keeping people um, on track, on the right road, and the little matters that you need to be candid about, you can avoid having, having, to ha- having to resolve conflict. You know, I had a situation just recently where I had a team member that was exhibiting some behaviors that were not in line with what we, we really want our people to do. And when I met with him and I s- tried to understand what was going on with him, and I ask a lot of questions. What had happened was I had said something in a meeting that had hurt his feelings. I'm meant to be joking. I, you know, everyone knows I'm funny and I joke around a lot. But sometimes that quick tongue can hurt someone's feelings. And so for four weeks, he had been exhibiting behaviors because I had hurt him that were creating problems with him on a whole bunch of team members. So when I went to him to resolve the conflict, and found out that it was sourced because of something I'd said or done and been oblivious to, now I can own that. So we avoid resolving the conflict when maybe it was something that we could quickly fix and make amends for. 
Yeah, great story and, and illustration there. I'd love to hear from your perspective, you know, diversity and inclusion is such a hot topic today in growing businesses and just all of the, the talent initiatives that are out there. Let's talk specifically on inclusion and what does inclusion look like when we love our people? Well, I, I think it's just super important when you're looking at people that you're seeing an individual and I'm, I'm assuming you're doing some things right in the hiring process and and vetting behaviors and, and situations that you know aren't going to fit with you. But then once you have this person in your organization, we need to respect the individuality of that person. And I'm not just talking about these broad-based terms of diversity and inclusion, but the, the individual styles and the individual posture of a person and uh, just being aware that you have a whole person in this whole job. And so sometimes grumpy people can be get the grumpy people can get labels on them. And there's there's grumpiness and there's toxicity and there's bullying. But just some people just have a grumpy nature or a and uh, some people may have this boisterous, giggly nature and that, you know, they can be excluded as well. And so I think we need to be tolerant of the individuality, putting guardrails around things that aren't, you know, that just aren't the right, the right thing for people to do. But, but um, I, I've said recently this week, I said, if I, when I retire, if I've ever, if I'm ever motivated to start a nonprofit, I'm going to start a nonprofit that defends grumpy people in the workplace. You know? <laughs> I'm going to do walks and marathons and bake sales for these folks and try, <laughs> try to defend their right to be grumpy. <laughs> You know, Marsha, I heard you speak somewhere recently and you were talking about how to uh, make transition peaceful for employees and really celebrate that at the same time. And so I think, you know, leaders many times have a hard time with employees transitioning on a lot of levels. One is, you know, it's just not the right fit. And how do we approach this and all of the emotions that go into that? The other is, you know, just accepting the fact that someone can flourish better somewhere else. There's so much to that. When you think of employees transitioning and just your years of leading, what comes to mind on best practices and helping to make that happen as best as possible? So uh, I would divide this question into two parts. What, what does it look like when you need to separate from a team member? And then the second part would be what how what does it look like when a team member needs to separate from you? As a as an employer, um, I have the right to eliminate jobs because of business needs. I have a right to eliminate jobs because of poor performance. And if I flip that, shouldn't the team member have a right to eliminate me because of poor performance? Shouldn't the team member have a right? to leave me because they have a better opportunity. The, their, their personal needs have changed, right? So they have a better opportunity somewhere else. So, you know, a few months ago, we had a situation where we needed to, we were uh, getting top heavy um, on leadership and we needed those resources spent more on, on frontline production. And um, the leadership team, as we were reviewing the financials and the data for our business and the workloads of our people and the timelines to get to a spot where our people weren't being um, tremendous, our frontline wasn't being tremendously overworked, we realized we, we needed to do something. And, 
And we went through about a half day of looking at this and all of us come into this awareness at the same time. And there's eight people with me in that meeting. Five of them came to me and said, look, you're going to need to cut some people in this room. And if you need to do that, I'm willing to go, which we define love in our in our core values as acting in the long-term best interests of another. So I felt like five of eight people did that. They, they In order to act in the long-term best interest of all of our group, they were willing to face down change of job. So we ended up... Um, we ended up cutting seven folks, and what I what we did was we went into our networks and started making calls on you know asking people where where do you see opportunities? How can I be a reference? How can we help you get your resume together? You know there are other tools that you can use to help people land softly like severance severance pay or benefits. But I think the most powerful thing you can do for them is help them find that next job. And um, one of them was very was very concerned about getting to this next job um had a family with a lot of fear in it had several opportunities that looked like they were going to come through and they didn't and so um i picked the phone up and called a competitor and i said this isn't going to make any sense at all to you but i'm coming to you honestly and openly this is a great person you need them on your team business changes have caused me to have to let this person go. And that business, that competitor hired that person. That person is super successful um, since they got there. It's totally changed the way they do business. I had lunch with them a few weeks ago and their their posture and their confidence and and everything was just so much higher than it had been ever in my organization. Um, and, and so that, that, that felt good and having that type of an outcome. And we got, um, we got all those people positioned in the, and not all by our efforts, but by their own as well. So we were able to make that, that transition, um, work in about as best of a condition as, as I could hope for. Okay. So Marcia, that was a great illustration on, on the side, the business had to make a, a big decision, you know, transformational decision for um, the leadership team. But what about when an individual employee needs to leave you? Can you illustrate that? I find these days that I get, you know, we're a startup business. And so you have people coming in and, and going on to other opportunities the, you have an economic environment where tenure of employees is not really long, especially those at the beginning of their career, um, moving from one opportunity to another. And I think the workforce is getting better chops for doing that. And you know, they, they had some practice turns, and so they don't fear changing jobs as much, too. So, um, so what we see, um, we had some people that had left our business and my, but you know, had um, had moved on to other spots, and I was getting challenged on do we have a, an attrition problem? And, you know, it's, you know, it's a, we have a startup business. We have um, lofty goals, both for our clients and for our business. And so um, I, that's not for everybody. The, the other piece in that is we're small and we're growing, but not fast enough. We're developing our people's skill set so quickly that they actually are, ready for a position ahead of when I'm ready for them to be in that position. Where my thoughts were was, it's my job as the business owner to let people experience a healthy, loving, serving, transformational culture. 
and to develop our people as well as we can, as quickly as we can for their next opportunity with us. But the truth is sometimes we're not ready for them in that next opportunity. So I had somebody who we trained in a certain skill set. That skill set made them worth about $25,000 more in a different company. I wasn't ready for that position or that type of an expense. So, so they went and got a job somewhere else. I was happy about that. I'm happy about that because they got $25,000 increase in pay. They got better benefits. Um, they got um, into a more corporate, larger company that they could work inside of. And they're going with having experienced our culture and things that they can take into that new environment. And that, that, that seems right to me. You know, I have a person on my team right now that is in a frontline position that normally would be a position you would take if you wanted to be in a sales career. And he's really not um, wanting to be in a sales career. We've identified the job that he that he would be great at on our team, but we're not ready for that spot yet. So I've been introducing him to other businesses to try and help him network so that he can find that right position. I just think I'm testing. I, I wouldn't tell anybody run out and do these things that I'm talking about yet because I, I don't have enough data points to tell you what's working and what's not. But I'm testing some thinking that says, I would rather know that you are wanting to go down this path and help you with that than to have you sneaking around, looking for jobs on my time, lying about your schedule and, and doing things that are not normally your character behavior. And I'd rather help you with getting that next job than, than getting a two-week notice and now I'm running around trying to find that next person. Great examples there. Let's dive into your uh, defender's journey, a story that has some data from your past for sure, like your 100x growth contribution that happened there. So what do you think when it comes to defenders and, um, you know, the the high growth and, you know, gosh, employee count, share with us where it was when you started and where it got to, but what sticks out about the culture that allowed that explosive growth? So I met defenders when they were a $2 million business running out of the spare bedroom of Dave Lindsay's home. And they were my client. I uh, started doing marketing for them in 1999. And within about 90 days, we, um, we were able to grow their business to an $8 million run rate. So it was a really rapid change in their business. Dave and I talked about acquisition at that time. That wasn't a good choice for me. So we ended up working as vendor and client for um, the first four years until we were about $25 million in revenue. And then we merged the two companies together. Um, I took the job as director of marketing and um, we grew the business to about 200 million by 2010. Um, at that point I was CMO. And then in 2010, I became president a few months later, um, CEO. And when I'm the first 18 months that I was in that job, we grew 180 million in revenue, no new marketing programs and no um, acquisitions uh, during that time. So, Today, I look at that and I talk to a lot of businesses about their growth in marketing. And I'm like, okay, how did how do you get 180 million in 18 months? So I knew when it was happening that I had taken the first 90 days to travel around the country with the executive team. And we did town meetings with all of the 140 branch offices around the country and listened to people and got their ideas on what we could do to improve their results. And three to five themes emerged. And so we got behind those themes as strategic objectives. 
communicated it well and made a great plan and laid it out for the for the team on what their thought leadership had taken us to. And 2,600 people pulled all in the same direction, working really hard for me and got everybody improved one or 2% individually. And when you added that all together, it ended up in $180 million in growth. So a few weeks ago, I was thinking about this, this time period of my career. And I'm like, so why did, I know I love and serve people or I try to, why did 2,600 people go that hard for me when I had, I had not been 2,600 people's boss ever um, before I got in that job? Part of the organization reported to me, but most of it did not. Why did they jump in so heavily? And it occurred to me that for 10 years before I got in that job, and without any intention of becoming president and CEO, I had been writing thank you notes to our operations team, to a lot of people around the business, but specifically, you know, we had 1,400 technicians around the country. And I was writing these thank you notes when the technicians or the branch managers were overperforming in their market because it was making my marketing programs work so much better. So I would write 25 to 100 of these thank you notes every week and send them out. And when I did the branch visits, people were coming with thank you notes or handfuls of thank you notes that they had gotten from me over the years. And all of those little deposits and the and me knowing what they had contributed made them feel like I knew them at a really deep level because I had made, been making those deposits along the way. And I, I really think that probably was fundamentally why they engaged so well with me. Wow. I was, you know, right before you gave that example, I was going to say, how do you, you know, go from where you were to then leading 2,600 people and everyone following? That's incredible. And, you know, I, I love that small deposits of love sure add up. And I, I think that, you know, it's the, the trail that you're blazing for people to start following. Any other um, examples of things that just, you know, illustrations of those like small deposits of things to do, whether you're doing them today or you did them in your journey at Defenders, that, you see that like little deposit of love really making a big impact. Yeah, it's, it sounds pretty simple, but knowing people's names, you know, you, we call it knowing their stories, but with 2,600 people knowing their names can be, you know, overwhelming. But I could probably call, I, if I saw 2,600 of them today, I couldn't do it because you, you get out of practice when you haven't been around them for a few years. But I could call 80% of them by first name and most of them know their wife's name or their kids. And that's just a muscle that you build up, use their name, call them by name, and then extend that into the specific things that they have done to grow the business. So we would have these events like a, a family picnic or a, a cruise, um, or an awards cruise or something like that. People would bring their fathers or their family and I would spend time talking with the father, the parents or the kids about what their mom or dad was doing inside of our business. And I wasn't talking to them about it. I was over here with the conversation with their family. And that, that really means a lot to people. And it's weird how I got to that spot of understanding why that was important. My dad worked for Sigrams for 30 years and they used to go to Kings Island for this family picnic every year. And I was just a little girl, like, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Um, and people would be coming up to me telling me about how much they liked my dad and what a good team member he was and how much they enjoyed working with him. And it just really made me so proud of my dad. 
Wow. What a cool, yeah. What a cool story. And I'd love to hear from you, um, you know, on mindset, if, if you could challenge our leaders listening today that are like, I've never really thought about bringing love into leadership. Maybe I've heard of service, like becoming more of a servant leader, but, but embracing love. What do you think is, is the mindset shift that we need to make there? I think loving, loving people, you know, I know my, my worldview, my Christian worldview drives a lot of that. I just see God and people. And even if they're grumpy or happy or slow, or maybe they don't even have the best intentions for me, for me personally, I try to look past that and look for the divinity in each of those people. Um, when I do that well, and, and you know, when, I, when I see them as a whole person in a whole job, then I get a desire to serve. I think if you jump in and try to serve without loving, it's pretty quick that you can become a victim. Uh, you can become overworked. You can start. It, it's an imbalance, right? Um, when you love without serving, it's just lip service. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, I love you, you know. But, but, um, but when you put the two together, uh, there's a balance in it that um, seems to make things accelerate as far as um, relationships and, and relationships drive your business forward. Talk about that for just a couple minutes. When when it comes to relationships, like truly building relationships and um, leaders that do that well, or relationships between between coworkers in workplaces that are thriving, give us a couple of illustrations of what that looks like. So I, you know, I, I'll go. Let me let me let me go to the spot of vendors. Let's let's talk about that for a minute because no one talks about the vendors, and I'm a vendor today, so I want to talk about it. Yeah, <laughs> there's this. Um, there's this period in my career when I went from owning Team Associates, the company I merged in with Defenders, and I had 200 employees that worked for me at Team Associates. And when I went to Defenders, I had no one reporting to me. So I had a lot of leadership experience and entrepreneurial experience. And I was now in charge of marketing and buying marketing and buying marketing that worked and managing these vendors. So I got to the spot where I just started to manage my vendors like I would team members. And I'm sharing goals with them and giving them feedback on what they're doing right and what we could do better at. I'm sharing the results. You know, I'm, I'm sharing the vision with them. We, I have an unlimited budget to spend with you as long as it works at this marketing cost for acquisition. And when I did that, I got such much better results out of the vendors than what previous people in that role had gotten. And I, I feel like it's because I loved and served the vendors and we, and gave them, they gave me permission to lead them and vice versa. That gave us transformational results. I think, I think we overlook that with our vendors a lot of times and make, make our purchases transactional. And Marcia, you brought up something that I, I've heard you say many times before, permission to lead talk about that that term or that that phrase permission to lead what do you mean by that right when when we love and serve people well they give us permission to lead them and when you have permission to lead them that's when true growth happens now that's true as we lead one another in business so i'm i'm in an interesting role in my company today i'm the ceo and we're an eos company um, our COO, Joe, is our integrator, but I also wear the sales and marketing hat. So there's part of my role uh, at Valve and Meter is I'm leading Joe, and part of it is he's leading me. 
And those conversations have to shift a lot of times. So I've given Joe permission to lead me on that and in that sales and marketing role on our team, which is it's interesting practice for me to move back and forth between those two, those two roles. We like it at Valve and Meter. We do marketing for other companies. So we help companies get transformational growth through financially accountable marketing programs. And when we first go in, there's a trust issue. Um, They don't understand how we love and serve at Valve and Meter yet. And there will come a time in every successful client that we work with, sometimes in the first few days, sometimes it takes a few months, but when they'll start to get it, that we're loving and serving and we're going to act in their long-term best interest. We're going to do the right thing, go the extra mile, um, do no harm. The, they, they can see that. And then they're like, aha, and they give us permission to lead them on um, the right decisions for their marketing. The, that doesn't mean we're a boss and we're out here running re- renegade, um, but they, they start to shift into um, submitting to the process that we run. Yeah. If I had to summarize, you know, so many of the things you were saying, and I love that phrase permission to lead, you know, we, we many times as leaders think there's some like silver bullet to change everything and build this culture that we're reading about in Forbes. And it's the small deposits of constant love and service that are adding up in the littlest things like the thank yous, the time to listen, the handwritten thank you notes, the getting to know their family, um, spending 10 minutes and, you know, uninterrupted conversation time with them. And I think you illustrate that better than most anyone I know. And I mean that. So Marsha, thank you. You're a rare human, someone I would call a heart on legs. <laughs> You're we're gonna take a, a quick break um, here from our sponsor. We're going to come right back to what we call our lightning round, um, where we get to learn just a little bit more about you, Marsha Barnes. We'll be right back. Custom Concrete has been creating foundations for the finest homes, commercial buildings, and industrial facilities throughout central Indiana since 1969. Builders, contractors, and homeowners rely on our expertise because so much depends on getting it right. Our knowledge and control of all aspects of the job, from excavation to waterproofing to backfill, means that extra value is built into every project. Codes don't drive our business. Excellence does. See the difference at customconcrete.com. All right, we're back on Gut Plus Science with Marsha Barnes. Uh, we're we're going to dive into just a couple questions to learn just a little bit more, maybe gain some resources from Marsha. So, Marsha, I'm going to put you on the spot. If you could pick a favorite book or one that you'd recommend to our audience today, what would it be? I like the John Maxwell Leadership Bible. Um, it has the Bible. It, it is a Bible with excerpts from John Maxwell's teaching about leadership from, a, from about a dozen different books inlaid against the scripture. How about a favorite vacation spot? Oh, you know, I'm not much of a traveler and I just love to go to West Baden Springs here in Indiana. And there is just a peacefulness about that facility that as soon as my feet hit the ground in one of Indiana's finest, finest historical spots to be, it just restores peace for me. It's gorgeous there. How about a favorite hobby when you're not working? It's mission work. I go to, I'm part of the Youth with a Mission Homes of Hope program. I'm on the board. I've done 19 short-term mission trips there. That's, that's what I do with my spare time is ministry and mission work. 
we could do a whole nother episode on that, I think, because you've got about 20 different causes that I think you belong to. <laughs> and Marsha, um, how can listeners connect with you after the show? A, I want to say, guys, she is one of the best marketers you could ever talk to. Absolute genius in that. And then just her natural talent is about building companies that have people that follow. So whichever way you want to hit her up after the show, Marsha, what's the best way to do that? Um, you can go to our website, um, www.valvermeter.com. Isn't Marsha a lovely human being? I could talk to her all day. Here's my truth you can act on from today's conversation. Number one, we've got to get permission to lead and not assume people are ready. And what does that look like? It's, it's taking time. Doesn't happen overnight. Building trust and building relationships with people and earning their permission to lead. Number two, serving serving our people, selflessness, the question of what can I do for you? The time of listening and then following up on what you heard. Selfless servant leaders, people follow. Number three, small deposits made regularly make a huge impact. So knowing their names, writing notes, remembering what someone shared with you and repeating that. All of the little small deposits that over time make people know that you care game changers to drive engagement. So with that, Marsha, thanks for your time today, guys. We'll see you next week on Gut Plus Science. We just left the world a little bit better. Now go do something with it.